Chris O'Connor here. Join our prestigious curmudgeonly community on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash curmudgeonrock. Also be on the lookout for a Spotify playlist dedicated to this episode. Now let's get started. This is the Curmudgeon Rock Report, and this is your podcast made by rock geek iconoclastic outsiders for rock geek iconoclastic outsiders. For those of you who lament that rock music has gone the way of jazz and slipped into niche genre status, we are here to keep that flame alive by providing insight, analysis, recommendations, and honest takes, not hot takes. And hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some rock history you never knew before. Having sold roughly 70 million albums worldwide, the Australian pop rock juggernaut NXS sold 30 million of those in the U.S. alone making them the third highest-selling Australian act in U.S. history, behind only ACDC and the Bee Gees. From the mid-1980s to the early 1990s, they were one of the biggest and most popular bands in the world, scoring numerous hit singles all over the world. Yet, in the last decade, and especially among millennials and Gen Z music fans, NXS seemed to be a rather forgotten band, almost a relic of the 1980s. While this is the case for them, several of their peers, such as Nick Cave, U2, and The Cure, seem to enjoy burgeoning reputations as legacy acts that transcend generational boundaries. Why is this? Why have they been marginalized as a relic of their era? Were they, like many other bands, washed away into insignificance by the tidal wave of the American alternative rock movement of the 1990s? Was lead singer Michael Hutchins that much of an annoying, pretty boy frontman? Did their music just not age well? Well, the Curmudgeon Rock Report is here to most definitely refute the latter and explore the former two. We actually think NXS were a fantastic rock band with indelible pop instincts that really stood out from the crowd in their day. And their watershed moment, their 1987 album Kick, should undoubtedly be on anyone's list of the greatest albums of all time. Daniel Springer, an NXS superfan and a DJ on Gwangju, South Korea's English-language radio station GFN, will be our special guest as the Curmudgeon Rock Report brings you In Defense of In Excess. Arturo. Yeah. Arturo. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of people out there, uh, let's say baby boomers, who would probably argue that Jim Morrison was the ro- the sexiest man in rock and roll. Right. And there probably are a few, lots of actually Gen Z kids who would say that Harry Styles is rock sexiest man. He doesn't do rock music at all. (laughs) He does crappy pop music is what he does. Close enough. Close enough. Well, hey, here's the thing. They're both wrong. Michael Hutchins of NXS. (laughs) Uh, We are very comfortably married men in our 40s, but I can definitely say uh, Michael wins. Listen, um, he was close personal friends with Bono from U2. And uh, I remember reading, uh, reading, not watching an interview 
uh, with Bono and, and where he talked about, you know, yeah, you know, people talk about me being a rock star or a rock god. I'm just pretending to be a rock star. Michael Hutchins, that dude was a professional rock star. A- absolutely. He, he, he had the bona fides, man. He, uh, he, he, he walked the talk and unfortunately he could only walk it and talk it so long. <laughs> he walked the talk and talked the walk? Yes, he did. Yes, <laughs> y- 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 yes, y- yes, he did. And he, and he, and he could only do it for so long. And, yeah. uh, you know, RIP Michael, but we're, we'll be talking about NXS and we'll be doing that with, uh, with us, with our guest and, uh, friend of the podcast, Daniel Springer, uh, here shortly. For all you folks out there, Daniel is a radio DJ uh, here in Gwangju, South Korea, where I live, and he works for the English language radio station. He's the music guy of the English language <laughs> radio station here in Korea. It's GFN, and uh, he will be with us very shortly. Yeah, that sounds like a dream job. I, I want to be the music guy at a radio station. Okay, well, anyway, with that said, as we always do in these episodes, let us now uh, take advantage or let's rip the space-time continuum and go over into our parallel universe. I.e. the the grunge edition of the parallel universe. Yep. uh, In the parallel universe, that is a good segue, Arturo, because in the parallel universe, grunge still rules, uh, (laughs) as does everything else, uh, rock and roll, and everything else that makes you listen to this podcast and admire the curmudgeonly worldview that rock and roll is still king and on the billboards and in the arenas and on the cover of Rolling Stone. Rock and roll still matters. It's not a niche. It is the thing. And especially over there, the thing is grunge. And here in 2023, we've got one very, very new band and one very, very old band that are still proving that grunge can grunge your brains out uh, still to this day. Uh, Tell us about uh, this newish record uh, that you'll be covering here in the Parallel Universe today, Arturo. Yes. Straight from the rank moldy dive bars that constitute the live music circuit in Philadelphia comes Laurel Canyon, a neo-grunge band that just a couple of months ago released their self-titled debut album. It is a nasty, snarling, angry, corrosive sludge feast of an album that has to be heard to be believed. Imagine if early sub-pop label, late 1980s grunge, skips the major label purification process of the 1990s and gets updated for the 2020s with a modern lyrical sensibility that reflects the nihilism and disaffection of young Gen Z music fans repulsed by the shallowness and vanity of social media culture and the suffocating ubiquity of vapid mainstream pop culture. Now, with a name like Laurel Canyon, you know this band is being very ironic (laughs) with their tongues firmly planted in their cheeks. What you also know after listening to this album is that this band isn't all about noise and feedback. There are some serious songwriting chops here as the three members of the band, simply named Nick, Serge, and Dylan, (laughs) I don't know their last names, (laughs) They, they, they like to employ a slurred, dragged out approach to their lyrics and vocal melodies that distract you a bit, but after repeated listens, opens itself up and reveals how catchy, punchy, and tightly constructed these tunes are. Uh, curmudgeonly favorite Steve Albini produced half of this, of this album, with Bryce Goggin producing the other half. And from the opening track, the surging opening track, Dropout, 
You know the guys in this band expect the grunge comparisons with a wink and a nod in the song's chorus, I Can't Complain, clearly referencing Nirvana's On a Plane. Uh, The rampaging Madam Hit the Wire has an utterly decadent lyrical narrative that brings to mind the Velvet Underground Sister Ray as done by Mudhoney, who we'll talk about later. Uh, The tracks Eczema and Victim achieve that rare feat that the vast majority of Nirvana-influenced bands fail to accomplish. They assimilate the latter band's influence, particularly the soft verse, loud chorus dynamic, without slavishly copying them by repackaging the style and the energy into something entirely new, fresh, and invigorating with their subtly melodic and slightly psychedelic guitar lines. Indeed, in a curmudgeonly parallel, curmudgeonly parallel universe rock station, these songs would be huge hits. Victim especially hits the mark with its mid-song tempo change to terminal velocity and its brilliant opening lyrics damning the egomaniacal narcissism rampant in mainstream society. Everyone's a victim. No one's a symptom. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, the album never relents with coruscating tracks like Tangiers and Take Your Cut. And of course, the epically intense album closer Sod, as in Marquis de Sod, where the singer barks out the opening verse, there's a fetus in the vomit. Absolutely perfect. As of now, this is my number one album of the year. And someone should tell the members and call the members of Boy Genius and tell them that this is what real rock and roll is supposed to sound like. Chris? Yeah, this is what rock and roll, the real uh, variety, is supposed to sound like. Uh, A compliment I can give uh, this young band is that after listening to Eczema and then obviously Sod as well, uh, it made me immediately want to go listen to The Muddy Banks of Wishka uh, (laughs) by Nirvana and especially Aneurysm, which is one of the more breathtaking songs uh, uh, in the rock canon. And so that's the kind of territory that they're evoking Uh, with this record in a parallel universe where rock music is is still in the pop cultural zeitgeist and is not a niche mud honey would be co-headlining arena bills with pearl jam correct correct uh they certainly will uh would be and they certainly still would not be in the same band together (laughs) I love this story that you've told in our episode when we had Rona Giovanni, uh, yeah. one of our other guest uh, appearances on this podcast. Uh, the story that you told about uh, the guys in Green River going yeah. to see Jane's Addiction and Mark yeah. Arm and Steve Turner not really getting Jane's Addiction. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which just kind of shows you how uh, unique in that Seattle scene uh, those guys were. Yep. Uh, Mud Honey is definitely still a thing. Uh, they are one of the great proto grunge bands. And one of the more important bands in the growth of that Seattle scene. Well, hey guys, and hey folks, they're still around. Uh, they just released their twelfth studio record called Plastic Eternity. Uh, this is their first record in five years, and the occasion uh, for making it, uh, their bassist uh, Guy Madison, who replaced Matt Lucan uh, twenty-five years ago, yeah. uh, during twenty-two, uh, made the decision to return to his native Australia. And that, from what I've read, triggered uh, the decision by Mark Arm and Steve Turner to go into the studio and make one last album uh, with uh, with Mr. Madison. And that's where Plastic Eternity comes from. 
And it's it's a kind of a weird record in a sense that it mines the territory that you would expect from uh, from Mudhoney. I mean, obviously going back to their uh, wonderful. It's it's actually a, it, it really is a killer record. I, I recommend strongly that y'all go listen to it and find it. Super Fuzz Big Muff. Oh, from the, it's, one of the, it's one of the greatest EPs of all time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It is. Uh, and it is very, very well named because it is super fuzzy and big muffy. Uh, <laughs> and just, you know, Touch Me, I'm Sick, uh, which yeah. is their most famous song, uh, is on that. Well, now, uh, here, still 35 years later, uh, they're doing their thing. Uh, it's still fuzzy and it's still buzzy and it's still big. Uh, but it's a little inconsistent this time around because it, it, in some spots it gets very mid-tempo and proggy and acidy. Uh, acid Rocky, and then the first in, half, the first half yeah. of the albums, like that. yeah, the first half is basically like a slow stretch prog album, and then the second half, second half they, is way tighter. Yeah, the second half they remember their mud honey. Yeah, and it's the second half. It is funnier. The second half is faster. It's fuzzier. It's uh, it gives more room for Steve Turner to really do his thing. I mean, there's some really great soloing on the second half uh, of the record uh, as well. So highlights on this record. And again, uh, this is called Plastic Eternity, uh, the album. And it's on Sub Pop, coincidentally. Uh, Sub Pop's, in, they're in a, a renaissance phase right now. They, they A lot of albums and a lot of bands are on Sub Pop, uh, you know, more than you would think. You know, the Mets is of the world. Uh, the, the only mistake they've made lately is Way's Blood, but we'll, we won't <laughs> go into Way's Blood. Yeah. Uh, Karen Carpenter Redux. Bleh. But anyway, uh, so they're on Sub Pop. Here are the highlights. Uh, the song Almost Everything, which is uh, by far the best song on the first half of the record. And it's this stoner rock at its finest. Uh, fuzzy guitars, funky conga, distorted and echoing vocals from Mark Arm, and trippy, dopey lyrics about being a 14 billion years old infant. <laughs> it's a good little banger, but it's, it's, it's spacey as hell. And like we said, by the second half of the record, they're starting to sound like Mudhoney again. Uh, starts off with uh, with a anti-vaxxer, anti-anthem, so to speak, uh, called Here Comes the Flood. Anti-anti-vaxxer. Uh, Anti-anti-vaxxer, yes. They they really ta- uh, tear these anti-vaxxer people a new asshole on this song. Uh, check out these lyrics are, quote, What's inside us that's making me squirm? There ain't no virus. It's probably just worms. I'm a man. I'm a horse. I'm man enough to let nature run its course. Ooh, <laughs> yeah, that's a burn. Yeah. Uh, the next song after that is called Human Stock Capital, which yeah. has got this really kind of old school, punky, screamy energy. Anti-capitalism, and, pretty much. And, yeah, he goes from anti-vaxxer to anti-capitalism. And really, the angrier and more straightforward arm plays it, the funnier he is and the better the music becomes, too. As I said, Steve Turner really uh, gets to shine on some of these songs, especially... Uh, my last highlight, which is a song called Cry Me an Atmospheric River. Great title. Which is, yeah, which is a very, very funny title. But it's a groovy little rocker about climate change. Uh, <laughs> ha- halfway through, it you know it starts off as kind of a fast, uh, you know, kind of uh, galloping, uh, sort of traditional mud honey uh, mm-hmm. rhythm. But then halfway through, it becomes a mid-tempo prog rock that really would make Caress of Steel era rush very, very proud. This is this and, the, the, the only good prog rock experimentation on the album is in this track. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I, I do like almost everything though. Almost everything is kind of uh, is kind of out there. I guess it's Mudhoney's take. I guess it's more closer to proto grunge than prog rock, but it's hmm. it's these are the two kind of quote unquote slower 
uh, trickier things that work. It's Crimean Atmospheric River and almost everything. So uh, there you go, folks. Mud Honey is still fun and it is still dumb in the good way and is still kicking. Check out Plastic Eternity. Uh, Arturo, any thoughts? I'm applauding because this is the first good album you've recommended in a long time. <laughs> this oh, is a stop. This is a this is a really good record. The Drop with Dano broadcasting each and every weeknight on GFN, exploring the entire world of new music, old music, and definitely something different for your radio taste. Check us out on social media. That is at or Golbingi, as we say around here in Korea, GFN The Drop. So we are joined by Daniel Springer. Daniel yes. Springer, who are you? <laughs> who are you? Who is this guy? Why is he here? Um, <laughs> exactly. I'm the host of a show called The Drop. Uh, I was broadcasting seven nights a week. Now it's like five. We had some budget cuts at GFN, which is mm. the uh, local English radio station in Guangzhou here. And um, thanks for having me on. Uh, hopefully you guys can throw up a couple links so people can check out the show. But um, yeah, ab- absolutely. The drop on GFN in Guangzhou, South Korea. I- I'm in suburban Houston, so Guangzhou might as well like literally be Japanese to me. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, I know Arturo has been trying to get me to visit for years, but hey, now I have the time. Maybe at some point I'll have the money and uh, I'm now married. So at least I have the company. Uh, right. so, so well, plus, who knows? I mean, you only had Arturo as a reason. So, you know, well, yeah. And I was kind of saying, you know, and, and that, that just wasn't enough. So, yeah. uh, on that note, uh, so thank you so much, Daniel, for joining us. It's good to have a rock guy on this rock guy podcast or the, the iconoclastic rock geek po- podcast of all iconoclastic rock geek podcast, the curmudgeon rock report. <laughs> so that's a pretty good. That's a pretty catchy uh, slogan. Yeah. yeah. Yes, it is. So Arturo uh, set us up here. We're going to be talking about NXS, which is a band that men of a certain age uh, revere and remember very, very well. Uh, and but women they, too. Yeah. And, a lot, and lots and lots of women, but for whatever reason, even among men of a certain age and women of a certain age, there's, they're somewhat maligned. Well, we're, we're here to kind of counter uh, that record. So Arturo set us up and then uh, let's, uh, let's get into the back and forth with, uh, with Daniel. Yes. Five myths about in excess plus a sixth bonus bonus myth that Chris will uh, bring in. But the first myth is that Michael Hutchins was just a poster pinup and model shagging pretty boy. All right. Now, Yes, he was pretty. Yes, he shagged hot female models. Seriously, who wouldn't if you were in his position? If I were a rich, famous rock star in the 1980s, I'd be fucking any hot model I can get my hands on. And I don't care how fucking crass and chauvinistic that sounds. But anyway, do you know what else Michael Hutchins was? He was a fantastic singer possessing one of the most underrated and distinctive voices of his era. He had a deep, soulful voice that had range and was versatile in that he really could dip his toes into almost any pop style or genre. And he indeed did so throughout the 17 years that In Excess put out albums. He was also a damn talented songwriter as he co-wrote practically everything with Andrew Ferris. 
it isn't an insult to call the man the Jim Morrison of the 80s. Daniel? Uh, yeah, I agree with that. I think that he doesn't have like a crazy versatile voice necessarily. There are some songs where he kind of hits yeah. these areas and his voice wasn't comfortable everywhere, but right. unbelievable artist. I mean, extremely yeah. talented, just a guy that could do no wrong as like your front man. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, probably one of the most iconic 80s and 90s frontmen of any band you could think of. And the, you know, the band was totally unique. you got to give it up to the guys sure. actually doing the playing. I mean, oh, they yeah. just killed it. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm an old school guy, so I still call them the Ferris Brothers. But um, <laughs> they, they absolutely murder it. Really, really great band, man. The thing from about Hutchins is he kind of traveled a journey from self-assured to very self-assured to extremely self-assured over the course uh, of 20 years. And you're right. He did have this gift of phrasing and uh, performative. You know, he could find the performative uh, grooves uh, with, you know, those spaces uh, in the songs that uh, him and, uh, and Andrew Ferris wrote. And, uh, and so just some of the, even like some of the earlier stuff, like don't change, which I, I always forget is in excess <laughs> when I yeah. first hear it, you know, yeah. you think it was like some random, like British new wave band that like one hit wonder band <laughs> yeah. and it turns out to be in excess. Yeah. Uh, but even like, obviously the great one is need you to uh, need you tonight. And so he just has a singularity, uh, he's singular as a performer. Uh, and that's what he does. He, he he wasn't so much a singer so much as he was a vocal performer. And uh, there was a maturity there towards the end uh, where uh, I think he ha could say he was a kindred spirit with Mick Jagger. I mean, he had gotten to that level of yeah. of swagger. And so, Absolutely. yeah, tremendous front man. Go ahead. And let's just set the base, you know, the baseline rule right now. All three of us would have definitely fucked Michael Hutchins. I mean, like, <laughs> oh yeah, nobody's that straight, okay? Like, no, 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 nobody's that straight. I mean, I mean, I was, I was, I was reviewing and I was watching old YouTube videos and researching for this, and I just yeah. found, I just found myself being like, "Damn, that guy was handsome." Like, you know, <laughs> I mean, it just—it's yeah. it, it, it almost kind of distracting in a way of like, <laughs> totally. yeah, I got to give it up for him, you know, I'm. You know, I'm I'm a happily married guy, but I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He, yeah, he he wins. And one thing you got to say about Hutchins and the band, one of the hardest working bands of all time. Oh yeah, Dude, they were so unbelievable, constantly yeah. on the road. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, for, for, yeah, for sure. And and the fact that, uh, well, you know, we'll get into it. The fact the the way they wrote the uh, I need you tonight or need you tonight is just like you know ma magic in a bottle, but it's li like literally band on the run. Uh, <laughs> you know the way yeah. they, the way they, uh, uh, the way they wrote it. So, anyway, yeah. uh, myth number two, sir. Myth number two: They were just a one-hit or one-album hit wonder. This one is oh shit, terrible. Yeah, I'm so not bad. ashamed. I'm not ashamed to say that I'm old enough to remember the 1980s. So were you guys? Um, yep. NXS were everywhere. Massive. They were they were ubiquitous on both rock and top 40 radio, and they had numerous hits. What You Need was a top 10 hit on both sides of the Atlantic. Their seminal 1987 album, Kick, produced not just Need You Tonight, which hit number one, 
but three other top 10 hits, Devil Inside, New Sensation, and The Beautiful Never Tear Us Apart. And it's not like the follow-up album, 1990s X, was a flop. Suicide Blonde and Disappear were massive worldwide hits, both hitting the top 10 in the U.S. I know this makes me sound like a grumpy old man, but you really had to either live in the 1980s through the early 90s to realize and know how hugely popular NXS were. They were, oh, yeah. on, the, they were on the U2 level, you know? Yeah. yeah. Go ahead, Daniel. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, the one thing that I think this kind of skews towards the American audience, yeah. like thinking they're a one-hit wonder because really Need You Tonight is their only number one, but they had plenty of, you know, uh, top 40 Right, right. During yeah. this time. But if you're just like a super casual list, listener, you're just flipping on, you know, your radio or whatever. And, oh, that's in excess. You probably hear Need You Tonight. And then yeah. you're like, well, you know, I never heard anything else from them. So if you were living in Australia or the UK and thinking yeah, they're yeah. a one hit wonder, you're just not paying attention. Yeah, you you you, 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 you had lost at least half your brain cells by that point if you thought yeah, that. Right. I mean, uh, especially it, in Australia, I mean, they were already like a top band for like a decade. You oh, know? yeah. And, 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 it's, and it's funny that you, you started your uh, segment by saying, well, here's the one thing. Well, the one thing uh, was uh, what introduced in excess. I remember uh, their song, The One Thing from 1982. That was the most shocking thing of my research on this, that the one thing was from 1982. Yeah. Uh, I, you could not escape that song. I mean, I was seven, <laughs> I was seven years old. Yeah. Uh, and even until yeah. like 1990, 91 on those MOR stations that, you know, hey, 70s, 80s, 90s, you would hear the one thing all the freaking time. And, and so, and it actually goes back to 82. I thought it was on the same record. I thought it would be like a contemporary with what you need or somewhere Mm -hmm. in there in my mind, but no, it actually comes from like album number four, uh, like way, you know, like in 1982. NXS, legendary. Now, myth number three, that they were just a simple, shallow pop band. This is another another stupid one. NXS were quite eclectic and versatile musically. Uh, rock, funk, punk driven rock, hip hop inspired beats, lush orchestral ballads, acoustic folk inspired music, proto electronica, you name any kind of pop style of the 1980s and NXS did it and did it well. I mentioned earlier how Michael Hutchins co-wrote all the songs. He was also a very underrated lyricist who had his own unique insight and take on uh, personal relationships and the toll that they take on somebody's emotional and mental state, which is kind of been predicting because of the troubles he would have later in the 90s with Bob Geldof's wife. <laughs> um, and considering how his life ended, a lot of in excess his more personal songs carry more resonance when you take sure. all that into consideration. Right, Daniel? Yes. I mean, the band is unbelievable, but they were truly unique in what mm. they did. I mean, one thing that I always notice about like rock songs that catch my ear. Oftentimes they have some kind of element of funk or jazz, right. you know, like a saxophone, right. you know, harmonica, uh, something like that. There's some kind of unexpected element going on. And uh, In Excess were the kings of that. And the band could just jam. I mean, yeah. the Paris Brothers and Company musician. could just kill it. Sure. Um, yeah. Awesome. And, uh, I, I will say that uh, like... 
aside from kick, they kind of strike me as like a bust of rhymes phenomenon of rock in that (laughs) they have these albums, their albums as a whole, even during their peak, there's always like four or five songs that are like, meh, throw away. Like you don't even remember them right after you listen to them. But there's always like three or four super clutch jams on these albums. Like just unbelievable bangers. And so when when we get into the albums, I'll mention this, but like uh, they were the quintessential singles band. Their singles always were kick ass. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, Arturo's heard me say it, that I I make a line that uh, Stone Temple Pilots were the Jethro Tull of the nineties. Well, I mean, NX, NXS had kind of the same ability, but they also had some great albums too. Uh, I will say this uh, in terms of this, the idea of them being simple and shallow, obviously that's BS. So for a few reasons, uh, one, uh, you had, uh, uh, what's his face there? Kirk Pengilly with his saxophone. Yeah. And so you would have these sort of electronic like, drum machine beats, but even from very early on, I mean, you had the saxophone that was in there that had this sort of unusual, uh, gave this unusual depth or this unusual, uh, feeling to, mm-hmm. you know, like that kind of new wave-ish rock, Australian, British rock. I mean, that was very unique at the time. And then that's really one of their things too, is that over time, they went from being a very electronic, sort of very detached uh, sound. And they kept getting more naturalistic and organic on top of, they always had that electronic backbone, but they would keep getting more organic and all, all of that. Now, you know, they did a lot of songs and one of their themes is about it was living dangerously and they made that sound alluring and thrilling. But like you said, Art, they also made it pretty clear that uh, there actually was a lot of danger. Yeah. And so, you know, devil inside and suicide blonde and, and yeah. those types of things elegantly wasted. I mean, it made, it made it clear that there was a toll and yeah. then you got to give it up for them in 1984 where uh, they're getting a hit at least in Australia, out of a song that the chorus or the the hook in part goes, dream on black boy, dream on white girl, and wake up to a brand new day. Yeah, it's a commentary on a doomed interracial romance. Yes, it's uh, interracial affairs is rebellious scandals. And uh, this is the hook of a hit, a big hit, at least in Australia in 1984. So uh, that's shallow my ass. And produced by Nile Rodgers. Yes. Now Rogers. Yeah, yes, yeah. Now, now Rogers uh, pr- did produce those. Uh, yeah. He at least one record, right? I think. I think he. Pro- I think he produced just that song on the record, but he oh, might okay. have produced the whole thing. Um, but okay. yeah, that definitely shows where they're at at that point in their career. They're definitely like on the rise, getting some notice from big yeah, names, abs- and absolutely. it's harder to find a bigger name than Nell Rogers. You know? Oh yeah, Nell Rogers. That guy's a genius for sure. Yeah. Uh, All right. Myth number myth, four. Myth number four. That they weren't innovative or distinctive. Bullshit. Kind of covered that with what we talked about before. I mean, just absolutely. Yeah, kind of, kind of. But but yeah. the more specifically to their sound, yes. what I want to talk about is starting especially with their 1985 album, "Listen Like Thieves." NXS crafted a unique and distinctive sound. Yeah. This brand of funk-driven dance rock that they perfected. Yeah. Kick. Yeah. They sounded like virtually no one else at the time. The, no one else sounded like them. Anytime you heard an, in, an, an in excess song on the radio, you would know it was them by the opening chords 
or the intro riff or even the opening rhythm. It's that sound that was so yeah. that no one else had. Really, yeah, no, especially I, the way that record opens out. What you need is still yeah. an unbelievable jam. Killer. Like, yeah, so that's, that, that's a killer first track for sure. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay. I'm not usually a fan of processed guitar or processed guitar <laughs> engineering, but NXS did it better than anybody. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, that whole sound, that that sort of that that processed almost, you know, like, you know, guitar as uh, studio, uh, you know, kind of almost in a box. It was almost like guitar in a box, you know, mm. like this transportable sort of out of time, almost out of the space of the song. And they had a real gift for shaping riffs and shaping sounds doing that. And so. Yeah, I mean, okay, fine. Lincoln Park, they could do process guitar and engineering, but they sucked. Uh, NXS, <laughs> NXS was great, and they were they really did kind of innovate that thing, that kind of thing. Yeah. Like, I would sure. say, hell, uh, they, like it was basically like them and Rick Rubin <laughs> in the mid '80s and <laughs> the late '80s that were doing that were doing the process guitar thing better than anybody on the wor- in the world. Special shout out to uh, the band me and my sister used to call Lincoln Park because we fucking hated them. <laughs> we would call him Lincoln. Yeah, Lincoln. Yeah, Lincoln Park. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How did I Lincoln Park get into a conversation about NXS? <laughs> Process guitars, Eng- man. Process engineering, guitars. baby. Engineering. Yeah. Engineering. So. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All okay. right. Myth number five: that they weren't influential. Uh, I got a lot yeah. to say here. Go ahead. I'll give, you, I'll give you the names of three bands. Maroon 5, Savage Garden, and the 1975. Granted, yeah. they all suck, but they are very popular groups who have gone out of their way to mention NXS as a big influence on their music. More sure. meaningfully, though, more meaningfully, back in 2010, Beck, yes, that Beck, recruited St. Vincent, Sergio Diaz from Os Mutantes and all three members of the band Liars to, in the span of one day, record a track-by-track recreation of the album Kick. If that oh, wow. isn't a complimentary tribute, I don't know what is. Is it any good? Yes, it's fucking brilliant. It's in excess <laughs> put through the filter of that classic, eclectic Beck style, that subterranean wow. sound world that he specializes in. The average music fan would never guess that there was a lineage going from Michael Hutchins to Beck Hansen. But go on YouTube and check it out and see that it, and it is true. Yeah. Daniel? It's, that is so good. That's, it's funny because that's exactly what I was going to mention. Um, yeah. I don't know if you guys have seen Beck live, but that's one of the best concerts oh, yeah. I've ever been yeah, to. Yeah, I, I saw him in, uh, as part of the Horde Tour in 1997 in, in uh, uh, Mansfield, Massachusetts. Yeah. Yeah, I, forget, I, was, uh, I saw I him at the Redden Festival in 2003. Okay, yeah, you I saw went. him when I was I saw him when I was still in college, so it must have been around there, maybe like late 90s. But I forget the record that Deborah was on. Oh, um, that's uh, uh, Midnight, Midnight Vultures. Vultures. Midnight Vultures. Yep. Yeah, it was the tour for Midnight Vultures. That show was unbelievable. One of I like, also saw him in Radio City. I saw him at that same tour. I saw him in Radio City Music Hall in 2000. Oh yeah, I. Didn't, I, I was with you there, wasn't I? Yeah. I think you Actually, were. Yeah. yeah, you were my plus one. We went for free. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. I, I, I was writing for SonicNet at the time, uh, Daniel, and uh, uh, I actually, because I actually wrote a story about that. And so, yeah, Arturo got to go see Beck for free because of my <laughs> dumbass. 
So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was, uh, I was working at the Ohio state like student radio. So yeah, I had, uh, I had, uh, I had like a plus one thing going on at the door and I remember my girlfriend at the time being very impressed. Like we got badges. (laughs) You, you opened up a quick side, uh, non sequitur door real quick. Uh, was Mark Robert in any of your classes? (laughs) No. Okay. Okay. No. Yeah, I, I, I had to, if you were at the Ohio State University in the late nineties, uh, hey, you know, well, OIR was a I OIR mean, was a thing, baby. I, I you know, I mean it's, it's like a needle in a haystack. I mean, I think it's sixty thousand well, students. Yeah, that's, there. Yeah. yeah, that's uh, true. school, dude. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Now you now you never know. You never know. Yeah, you never know, man. You never know. It's very <laughs> it's it's very big, but it's also very local. So all right, okay. yeah, very good. All right, I now, got you. Myth number six, bonus myth. Chris, this is yours, right? Yeah, uh, Midnight Oil was better than NXS. No, they, no, they weren't. <laughs> no, they weren't. <laughs> uh, no, they weren't. Uh, you know, but Midnight Oil is very storied because you know the, the politically active, and yeah, okay, fine. They were basically uh, Australia's answer to the Clash. Yeah, basically, Blue Sky Mining is a good song, yeah. but most of their stuff to me is just like unlistenable garbage. Be honest with you, they had a, they had a few great singles. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, everybody likes likes to accuse uh, Bono of being insufferable. Nah, man, not not compared to what's his name, Peter Garrett. <laughs> Peter nah, Garrett, that, yeah. That guy was insufferable, man. Well, he was so, also an insufferable dancer. I mean, what was with that whole well, thing? Yeah, ex- like, yeah, not ex- moving ex- his exactly. Leg, but just jerking his body yeah. around like some kind of inflatable yeah. ad outside a gas station or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> If, if epilepsy was disco, you know, uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty freaky looking. Uh, and uh, coincidentally, by the way, he's also a bona fide politician. He got elected into yeah. parliament. Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah true. He's, he's, he's a climate change guy uh, all the way, but no, uh, in, in, in excess was a more fun band. They were a more accessible band. Uh, they had, they had better melodies. They had better hooks and, uh, they lasted it, longer. I mean, everything. Yeah. Hey, it's Chris. Uh, Yours truly curmudgeons record the curmudgeon rock report using a program called Zencaster. And we have used uh, this program since we launched a little over two years ago. And much like we have evolved, so has Zencaster. The company was essentially in early startup mode at the time. And, you know, there have been bugs and annoyances along the way. But one thing has remained consistent the quality, and the value for us of the product itself. You see, Zencaster records the tracks of a podcast's participants natively. That means our recording session itself is never subject to the inherent unpredictability of the cloud or the inevitable half-assness that some all-in-one podcasting platforms will have across their functions. Most importantly... Since I am in Houston and Arturo is in South Korea, reliable recordings and excellent capture of our Ars Technica USB microphones is absolutely essential. So here we are now in 2023, 50-something episodes into this curmudgeonly journey. And here Zencaster remains. The company just switched from a credits model to a subscription model. Zencaster, we believe, is headed for big things, and we strongly suggest that you use it to record your own podcast. We now return to our regularly scheduled program. Rock on. 
So we're still talking NXS with uh, Daniel Springer and uh, yours truly, uh, curmudgeons are here. And so Arturo, uh, we're talking about this Australian band NXS. We just dispelled some myths. Uh, now give us an origin story. How did this band get started and how did they uh, become the NXS that we uh, began to learn to know and love? Also, how yeah. is it not part of the extended Marvel universe? I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, it, well, it, it, eventually they, it will be. They definitely have a comic bookish name, didn't they? NXS. Yeah. yeah there anyway, you go. Um, the three Farris brothers, Andrew, John, and Tim, they tend to be portrayed as the core of NXS, but the real creative core was the songwriting partnership of singer Michael Hutchins and keyboardist Andrew Farris. They were high school classmates and buddies in Sydney, Australia, when they formed a band called Dr. Dolphin in 1977. With a name like that, it isn't surprising that they didn't last long. However, older brother Tim and younger brother John invited Andrew and Michael Hutchins to join their band called the Farris Brothers. And as a sextet, they started playing clubs and pubs around Sydney. The Farris family soon moved to Perth in 1978, and Hutchins and the rest of the band followed. They changed their name to The Vegetables. The Vegetables. I love that. <laughs> and then yeah. they moved back to Sydney the following year and recorded a set of demos. Serendipity must be a real thing because after performing at a pub called the Royal Antler in one of Sydney's northern beach areas, a guy called Gary Morris approached the band in the parking lot. Mr. Morris also happened to be the manager of Midnight Oil, one of the biggest cult bands in Australia at the time. The Vegetables soon started opening for Midnight Oil and other well-connected bands in the Australian rock scene. And after some urging from folks in the Midnight Oil camp, the Vegetables wisely changed their name to NXS, inspired by the English band XTC. Uh, they started performing in the Aussie pub circuit as in excess in September 1979, and very soon their networking and connections paid off as they got hooked up with a manager by the name of Chris Murphy. Murphy was pretty well connected himself as he was able to land the band a record deal with Deluxe Records, an independent label formed by former ACDC manager Michael Browning. All these Aussies are connected, and yep. <laughs> the rest is history. Daniel, yeah. it's uh, it's all very local down in Oz. Yeah, it's amazing to uh, think that they've been together or at least Hutchins and one of the Ferris brothers. What, 71? It's like yeah. unbelievable. They were best I mean, friends. Like a few, it's like a few years later, they become the Dolphins or whatever. The other Ferris brothers join them. <laughs> but yeah. it's like, um, mm -hmm. yeah, and it's interesting to see, you know, the connection with uh, Midnight Oil. And all that kind of stuff. I also didn't yeah. know they, they relocated to Perth until I was doing a little research. Yeah. Because that's like yeah. the way out. That's that's the true outback of yeah. Australia, way out west. I mean, that's like the only town with over like, I don't know, a yeah. hundred people or something. It's considered yeah, like that, a yeah, yeah, that's, a, that's kind of like Perth? being like Salt Lake City, you know? Yeah, Perth, <laughs> Perth, Perth is a huge surfing town. Big into yeah. surfing. Big yeah. time surfing town. Yeah. So yeah, and and you know, the sort of early beginnings, it's it's kind of funny that you said that, uh, you know, one of their guys or one of their managers had connections with XTC. Well, eh, perhaps it's no coincidence that NXS started their life as sounding a whole lot like XTC. XTC. That yeah. would bring us into the first album. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Self-titled. 
Self-titled. Yeah. Their their self-titled album came out in 1980. Which okay. is actually marked as like a compilation on their discography on Spotify. Yes. For yeah, it is. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it, 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 I had some trouble yeah. finding it. I was like going, you know, going through it. I was like, I've never listened to this. But yeah, it's not on their albums compilation. It's yeah. which is weird because compilation. It's so strange. I know. Mm-hmm. In, in Australia, it was released as an album. You know, it yeah. was an album. Yeah, I mean, it is an album for yeah. sure. I mean, they're the only people on it. It's not a compilation. It's some kind of misfiling. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, awesome. yeah, it must be because yeah, I saw, I noticed that too, and I was like, wait a second, that's that's yeah. the debut, and right. yeah, it's, it's funny, and I, I I enjoy that the first song that you ever hear from the band is on the bus, so <laughs> you know, so, so, you know, like what's what's that Drake line started from the bottom, uh, <laughs> yeah. the bottom, yeah, <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> this first album, I have to admit, in excess's recorded recorded career gets off to a pretty inauspicious start. You can definitely hear the influence of the angular, quirky, offbeat, new wave pop of XTC, but only yeah. if that only if that XTC sound was straightened out, streamlined, and maximized for the most boring commercial appeal possible. Uh, it manages to be both vanilla and derivative. Nevertheless, there are some interesting nuggets here. The single "Just Keep Walking" is one of the few tracks on the album that really truly captures the XTC spirit with its social commentary on the soullessness of gentrification. Doctor, with its stop-start groove and staccato reggae guitar, kind of points the way to the versatility the band would show um, later on. Jumping and roller skating have some pretty cool tempo shifts. Recommend it only if you're a completist fan and are fascinated to hear a band you love start to figure out their sound. Daniel? Yeah, it sounds like they're kind of just caught in between the popular sounds uh, internationally and locally in Australia. I mean, they basically sound like, you know, a pub rock band. Um, Yeah. You know, in between like punk a little bit and ska, especially they have a very ska style sound to me Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. Especially. Yeah. yeah, those first couple records, yeah, 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 that definitely is an influence. And but you know, let's face it, they sound like twenty-year-old kids who are still figuring out who they are at this yeah. point. Yeah, it's like yeah, new wave ska rock synth pop. It's they're yeah. kind of they're kind of an amorphous galaxy yes. getting formed right after the Big Bang, just like a cloud of gas, and, yeah. and they don't yeah, really it, know yeah. what's going to happen or where it's going. You know, it, yeah, exactly. Yeah, twenty-year-old kids are, in nineteen eighty. Like yeah. Arturo said, there are little glimpses where you're like, oh, this is a pretty decent song. This yeah, is a pretty yeah. decent song. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I, fi- I find that with both this and their sophomore album, that's kind of the case. Um, Speaking of that sophomore album, Underneath the Colors from 1981. Now, you um, you mentioned, I'm going to go back to something that you said, Daniel. Like on this second album, NXS start to shed their XTC fixation. And like you said, they aren't quite there yet. But you can hear the band starting to zero in on something approximating an original sound. Um, yeah. The first track in the lead single, Stay Young, was their first big hit in Australia. And uh, it was in the top 30 singles chart over there. And it's easy to see why. It's a bouncy, funky, catchy number with its that gliding guitar riff. And it, it captures the accessible side of post-punk. And they go further into the funk with the minimalist groove of Underneath the Colors and its commentary on nationalism and xenophobia. Um, the consistency in their songwriting isn't there yet, especially apart uh, apart from their singles. But nevertheless, you can hear like where they're going, slowly moving away 
from new wave pop, you know? Yeah, yeah. definitely. No yeah. doubt about it. And um, yeah, it's getting a little less. There's this less ska. I feel in the second album, you can, you can feel yeah. them kind of coming into the synth and mm. a little bit funkier side of things, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, still, yeah not, still not quite there. We're eons later in the uh, after the Big Bang, yeah. but still not quite fully yeah. formed, you know. Yeah, but yeah. the blueprint is there. I mean, that the thing about underneath the colors, like the, uh, you know, uh, the the first track and then the t- the title track, especially with the uh, with the guitar that slightly trails the electric uh, electronic drum beat, and yeah. um, you know those those rhythms. That this is where they start to slither. Uh, you know, you start to get uh, the pendulum again, slither. Yeah, so you this, start, is, you, this is like yeah. your favorite word. Is this like Sesame Street? Yeah, this, <laughs> this yeah, is the word yeah. of the day. Yeah, this is this is the word of the day. They 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 they, they they're very slithery, uh, but nah. they, but you also get you know the, with the saxophone and the almost the the romantic uh, vibe or the uh, what would you call it the the alluring uh, vibe that they. Uh, obviously built on for years. Chris, it's, sh- called, it's called sexy. Sexy. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> yeah, so they start, it, the blueprint is here. And so they've yeah. kind of, they've built a, if there was such a thing as an NXS template, at least through, uh, at least through kick. So from here through kick, there was a template that they were working from. This is yeah. where they first introduce it. And so that's what makes it neat. And I, I actually do think that the title song is, the title song is a very, very strong song. I mean, that's got, yeah. that's, that's got yeah. a swing to it. It's got a groove. Yeah, I agree. Stay Young is, Stay Young is pretty good too. Um, yep. One thing to note, and we forgot to mention it about the first album, yeah. is they were doing like two gigs a day and recording at the studio from midnight to like 5 a.m., 6 a.m. Because crazy. it was cheaper. I mean, you want to talk about yeah. a hardworking band. But the other thing is, by the second album, you start to see them getting noticed by some people who kind of matter, like some mm. management types and A&Rs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You start to see yeah. them building a profile for sure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I, could, and I could see why, because, again, there's a progression between those first two records. Like the first, you know, the first record is is like a 20, you know, we're, we're a bunch of kids trying to sound like everybody else. And yeah. a year later, it's like, okay, we're, we're starting to figure it out. And like, oh, okay, well, those guys are pretty good. And that, yeah. that kind of leads them to their break, uh, with uh, which came a year later. Right, uh, yeah. right, Toro? I almost said a right, Chris. Later. That's right. Good, good right. transition yeah. there, Chris. Shabu yeah. Shuba from 1982. Here's <laughs> what I believe uh, in excess start to become in excess. Yeah. And their sound starts to crystallize. Um, their third album is their first album for a major label. Warner Brothers. And uh, while their songwriting isn't consistent enough to fill up a whole quality album yet, frankly, an issue not uncommon to most bands and artists of that era. Well, yeah. uh, It's with the singles that this band starts to soar. Um, The sexy swagger of the leadoff single, The One Thing, is unbelievably infectious and one of the most perfect pop nuggets. That that entire decade had to offer. It's no wonder it wasn't. It was not only their first massive hit in Australia, but it also hit top thirty in the U.S. Uh, to to look at you is a sultry, brooding track of understated power. The kind of which the band would become master craftsmen of uh, soon enough. Uh, Don't change shows that NXS could do rousing anthemic pop rock, aspiring to arena status. Oh yeah. Death. 
and not come off as cheesy in the process, oh, unlike no. a lot of other bands of that time. A good band is starting to find the recipe to become great here, I think. Daniel? I agree. I yeah. agree. The one thing, and this is kind of setting the pattern for In Excess and their albums in the future, they always open with a bang. Yeah. Um and it's, always, and it's always the single, too. <laughs> it, it's, yeah, it's almost always the the big tune on the record. Yeah, the single that was mm-hmm. released in the run-up. And yep. yeah, you can see them, again, forming and getting noticed by a lot more people. I believe they were trying, the, the, the managers were trying to shop this around to other producers in the States so that they, they could go over to L.A. and record it. But they didn't quite get any interest from yeah. any names. And so... Yeah. They still yeah. went with their usual producer, who ended up being their producer. Yeah, I was going to say ten years ride. later. Yeah, yeah. was yeah. Mark Osprey? I think I think was his yeah, name. But, uh, yeah, yes, some, something like that. Uh, Osby yeah. or, or or something like that. I can't quite. Uh, Opitz, Opitz. Mark Mark O. Yeah, Mar- yeah, um, Mark O. So. Mark O. <laughs> Mark O. <laughs> yeah, Mark O. But, um, Opitz. Yep. Yeah, this is this is a decent album. I mean, you know, getting through the research on this show was. Um, was a bit of a slog for the first two albums, but I mean, you know, yeah. you got to appreciate the first album for like how they're living, man. I mean, two yeah. gigs and then going all night into a studio session. Unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, but, yeah. Back in the old days, you, you, you would do a residency at a club. Yeah. yeah right. Contract and do like two, two sets a night. Right. Know, yeah. Three. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah. So oh, I know. Maybe, maybe that made it easier, but still, man, I mean, yeah. yeah everybody's yeah, rolling in crazy. the studio like, I would yeah. guess half in the bag and then going going all night with it. But yeah, you can see yeah. them really coming into their own here for sure. And then yeah. the next record is like, okay, these guys are like arriving, you know? Yeah. yeah. And then, and then with, with this album, like you mentioned art, it's, it's a very inconsistent record, but obviously uh, the one thing that's what, that's where they first got their uh, hold in America. Cause again, yeah, the one thing got right. in heavy rotation on, on, and, and MTV and then Don't Change is one of the songs that like younger folks uh, who might not, you know, remember uh, this band at all, but they do know the, the movie Adventureland, uh, mm. which is a uh, Jesse Eisenberg, Kristen Stewart uh, uh, throwback. We worked in an amusement park one summer uh, movie yeah. and yeah. Uh, prominently, prominently features Don't Change in it mm. and so uh so that would be the one song and like i said it's such an arena rock anthem type of song that yeah like, like literally i've i i know the song and it's it, it you hear it all over the place it's like a very licensed song yes yeah. I, I always forget it's nxs because it sounds like anything but the nxs we came to know and adore and <laughs> yeah so and it kind of proved early on that they had a, a, a versatility that again We'll, we'll get to it 10 years later, really, really shines through. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so. they also, that's, that's another thing you start to see even stuff from their earlier albums from now, after a while, like it'll start getting licensed, like you said, for like films and stuff like that. But it, this is like the sign of a young band that are starting to get noticed, you know, like yeah. they put out the album and then like six months, a year, year and a half later, it gets licensed for a commercial or a movie yeah. Or something mm-hmm. like that. So you're, yeah, you're starting to would, see this with both their sophomore and, you know, their yeah, third. Album. And that actually did happen to them early because I remember like, don't change. It didn't become a big deal on MT, on MTV per se, but yeah, yeah, it was, it was around. 
it was just it one of those around. Like, yeah, it was like it's, one of those lurking songs. It's kind of like, uh, yeah. like bl- yeah. blister in the sun where it's like, you don't know where you know it from, but you right. know it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're just like, you're just like, if you were me in high school, you're working at like a pizza restaurant and making yeah. pizzas. And you're like, how do I know that song? Like, you're not really paying attention consciously right. to the music that's just coming out of the commercial radio there. Yeah. Yep. True just enough. Like dusting over the customers, you know? Yep. Absolutely. All right. The next album, 1984, The Swing. Now, one of the missing ingredients in the NXS formula that we all know and love finally arrives on this album Dance Beats. And yes. they, they bring the funk as well. As with the previous record, it doesn't hold up as a whole album, again, in consistent songwriting. But boy, oh boy, do the singles kick ass. Well, we talked about Original Sin, the song you mentioned. Uh, is yep. an intoxicating dance pop song with its tragic story of a doomed interracial romance. I Send a Message is a razor-sharp electro-funk workout and Burn For You is as indelible as 80s pop music gets. Even the album, uh, uh, the, the title, uh, one of the, the album track, Melting in the Sun, grooves with this almost proto-industrial feel. And the same year that Depeche Mode were starting to mine that territory. Uh, these excellent singles were all top 10 hits in Australia, leading it to go six times platinum in that country. However, Despite the same singles charting moderately in the U.S., industry eyebrows were raised when the album went platinum in the U.S., opening the doors for their future pop chart uh, domination. Daniel? Yeah. Yeah. um, I mean, you just can't deny Mal Rogers being involved in Original Sin and then this their career just kind of taking off. I mean... And it's an amazing tune. One thing I do notice about this album is like the inconsistency of mastering that's going on. You go from one tune to the next and it's like, and this is something I noticed just because, you know, the radio thing and I'm always having to kind of master the tunes for radio play. The difference in the difference in volume level and the quality of production from like, yeah, it is a pretty erratic record. The rest of the album is very noticeable, but um, yeah, overall, a pretty a pretty good record. I mean, definitely inconsistent. They're not quite at well kick yet. Yeah, <laughs> so, they're not there yet. Yeah, you know, I don't want to ruin the ending or anything. Ruin the big surprise, but yeah, um, yeah. I mean, original sin is a genius tune, man. And at a time, yeah, you know, in '84, mm-hmm. where yeah, attitudes are changing on race, but things are yeah. still rough. If you're mm-hmm. in like any type of interracial or interethnic marriage or relationship, I mean, so it's it's good yeah. to see something like that become like an anthem, and it's you know it's genius tune. Sure, uh, answer a trivia question if you can for me. Uh, there, uh, who sang backing vocals on Original Sin? Kylie Minogue. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a early, it's a little early. Yeah, it's a little, yeah, it's a little early for that. Flute? No, yeah, she would have been like twelve at the time. Um, <laughs> Daryl uh, Hall. Oh, Hall and Oates. Yeah, because yeah, they because they kind of uh, were opening for Hall and Oates and a host of other people yeah. on like their respective North American tours. Like they they do yeah. like mm-hmm. part of the tour, but yeah, they were opening for Hall and Oates at this time too, which is amazing. Yep. On this episode, we defended the career and underrated legacy of NXS. For the next episode, 
Chris and I will discuss a bigger and even greater band, R.E.M. They're often regarded as one of the 20, 15, or 10 greatest American bands of all time, depending on which music critic you're reading. They got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in their first year of eligibility back in 2006. Yet why is it that they aren't remembered by millennial and Gen Z music fans with the same reverence that they afford artists such as The Beatles, David Bowie, Led Zeppelin, The Sex Pistols, The Smiths, Nirvana, or even Radiohead? A band that were living legends in the 1980s and 90s have now been, in the eyes of many, relegated to the status of very successful also-rans. As hardcore REM fans, yours truly curmudgeons will not let this stand. Music critic, published author, and REM biographer Tony Fletcher will be our very special guest as the Curmudgeon Rock Report will bring you REM. Remember those guys? The next album, Listen Like Thieves from 1985. Now, if the previous album, The Swing, put them on the international mainstream map, this is the album that really broke them big on the strength of the dance rock masterpiece single, What You Need, which was a worldwide smash hit, even going as far as number five on the U.S. Billboard chart. One notable aspect of this album that marked it as different from previous NXS albums, as evident from the record's other excellent single and big hit, the stampeding title track, Listen Like Thieves, is how much of a guitar-heavy album it is at times, and how at others, the guitars and keyboards meld into, along with the funk-inspired dance rhythms, really a, a, really a crystallization of the NXS sound. Hell, even, even some of the non-singles album tracks are pretty great. Shine Like It Does is a mid-tempo beauty that serves as a great platform for Hutchins's uh, best crooner voice. And Same Direction rocks on with a persistence that predicts some of the alternative college radio sounds of Love and Rockets and The Sweet oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, a good overall album that would have been better had Andrew Farris and Hutchins authored all of the songs instead of farming out some of the tracks to the other Ferris brothers. Sorry, guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, well, well uh, and, you, know, you have it right. I mean, uh, sorry to cut you off, Daniel, but it just you're right. This was the last record that really was a democracy where they, they, they gave democracy a shot. And then after that, they pretty much, it was all Hutchins and, and Andrew Ferris from there. But alas, we do get the guitars that get added to the drum machines and the sax. And, we are now having the stage set for the breakout of not just the NXS formula, but the NXS uh, vibe or the, the NXS uh, uh, trademark sound, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to note that um, Chris Thomas, who was the producer on this record. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. I mean, produced Queen, Pink yeah. Floyd, the Sex Pistols. I mean, it, it kind of yeah. goes on and on. Um, Elton John, he mm-hmm. felt after they had completed the album, that there wasn't a killer cut on really record yeah and wow. that is what inspired what you need he kind of had like a funk idea mm-hmm. and um uh, like a track that he was kind of working with and he's like what do you guys think about this what can you do with this and that's where you know what you need comes from and that oh, wow. to me is like the album completely yeah, yeah. i mean it ends up being the first tune 
on the record. And it's interesting to see kind of Chris Thomas being the inspiration for that. And I feel like he was right. You get past yeah. what you need and there's not like something that really grabs you on this yeah. record. I mean, well, not it, with the same energy, at least not sure. with this, not with the same energy. It like, he was right. There's not like a killer cut that would have been like a huge hit, like what you need on this record. And, uh, it was really, um, it's really an interesting look into the production process. Yeah. Best thing I can figure, by the way, is that, you know, like what you need is, you know, obviously their first that that was their breakout hit uh, internationally. And uh, but it's also one of those things that like and I think a lot of bands end up doing this mostly for the worse, but in their case, for the best, where you end up with a huge hit. And so so you spend the next few years like chasing chasing down that hit or it's like, okay, you know, it's, you know, it's chasing the next hit or, Oh, well, let's do that again. And that becomes kind of your, you know, okay. Oh, top that. Oh, okay. You know, and, and that kind of becomes the, uh, the idol, but you know, for them it worked. And so yeah. like, what, what you need gave them the idol. It was a hell of an idol because they exceeded it. And then some. Yeah. And I, I gotta, I gotta point out that, uh, the, the producer, Chris Thomas didn't feel like yeah. he had a killer track, but, it's Andrew Ferris who'd been working on just just kind of noodling around with this tune called Funk Song Number 13. That becomes what you need. Uh-huh. So they had yeah. finished the record and Chris Thomas is like, man, we don't have like a bomber track on mm-hmm. here. And so, yeah. mm-hmm. you there know, you Andrew, go. Ferris, Andrew Ferris is like, well, I, I've been working on this and it turns into what you need. Right. Yep. yep. How about Speaking it? of bombers, coming up next, Kick from 1987. And so it is that one of the greatest, most quintessential singles bands of the 1980s, at a time when they were already Australia's biggest musical export with a large international following, this is when they decided to up their game by making an album of seemingly all singles, one that can be listened to from beginning to end without pressing skip on the CD player or fast-forwarding on a cassette player. (laughs) The result result was kick. An album that was their Born in the USA, their Joshua Tree, their Thriller, uh, their Rumors. The album Raven. that brought their popularity to arena rock proportions. And more importantly, yep. a Stone Cold classic that to this day stands as one of the greatest pop and rock albums ever made. Seriously, where do you begin with this album that went top 10 all over the world and went multi-platinum practically everywhere? You got the, the Groovalicious very Prince-esque sex on a stick erotica of Need You Tonight. There's the pulsing, brooding tense, The Devil Inside, with one of the decade's single greatest guitar riffs put to record. Um, There's the gorgeous, aching ballad, Never Tear Us Apart, which started out as a Fats Domino-esque rolling New Orleans-style number before the band wisely decided decided to add a string arrangement to the track. There's New Sensation, a spiritual successor to the dance rock splendor of what you need that actually manages to perfect in excess's patented yeah. uh, dance funk rock formula. Yeah. All of these songs went top 10 in several countries throughout the world. And even more impressively, it's the album as a whole that marvels in its versatility and breadth of styles. Even hip hop with the track mediate that immediately follows need you tonight. Yeah. And, to, and to think After submitting the record to Warner Brothers and according to manager Chris Murphy, the label honchos hated the album because it was, quote unquote, too black sounding and actually offered the band 
They yeah. offered the band one million dollars to go to back re- to re-record the it, re-record it. Um, yeah, and, and so I, I think it was. I think it was actually Atlantic, who yeah. were. Yeah, uh, yeah. This proves that NXS they were ahead of the curve in blurring the lines in the 1980s between what was perceived as white and black music. You know. Yeah, but but the story of that it also kind of shows like the, you know the brilliant what what happened in the 80s. It was college rock. It was college rock radio mm. that uh, really. Uh, was the most important force in uh, in musical distribution and musical taste making in the eighties because uh, after yeah and into the nineties too yeah and I into mean, the nineties but like yeah. that story that you told her of uh, them getting rejected and offered a million dollars to go re record it well well what what management does is that they approach the uh, the college marketing wing or the college uh, rock. Uh, marketing wing of the label and they worked the college angles and it, and it took off at a few of those stations there. So that's how they were able to sneak it in the back door. And finally they, you know, uh, the, the label was like, okay, fine. And then of course it becomes this huge hit. Uh, need you yeah. tonight. Absolutely fucking perfect song. Uh, yeah. you know, just yeah. that, the, the, the tension of it, you know, that minimalist, you know, that minimalist sexiness and, uh, the performance uh, aspect of it from, from Hutchins. Uh, now, uh, I've said it on this podcast and I've been saying it for years and just private conversations with Arturo. We, all of us, all of us have one three minute pop song in us, one perfect three minute pop <laughs> song. All of us. Yeah. I don't think we've, none of us have written ours yet. I don't uh, think, but uh, we, we all have one in us. This is theirs. How perfect is it? It's three minutes and one second. It's just that, perfect. That, I mean, it, the it is a perfect three over. minute, literally I mean, a, a perfect three minute uh, uh, pop song. And yeah, well, it also spills over into Mediate, too. I mean, it just yeah, continues, which, and it's still awesome. And well, actually, well, for the longest time, I thought that they were the same song. Uh, I want to share a... This is actually from a review from a very good uh, reviewer, and too bad it's on Pitchfork, but a, a kid named uh, Alfred, Alfred Soto, who's about... He's about rough, rough, roughly our age, but writes for Pitchfork. And uh, he did... I will say this. The best stuff on Pitchfork are their retrospective reviews that they do every Sunday. They do a retrospective essay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, album. I keep up with those. And, yeah. and they're they're very, very, very good, uh, especially a guy named Stuart Berman writes some really good ones. But Alfred writes this one about Kick, and I think it was in 2017 for the 30th anniversary. But he has a great line in it about uh, Need You Tonight. And he says, quote, Hutchins turned in a performance that was a karaoke version of itself when when Bonnie Raitt covered it in 2016, she didn't even try to compete. She didn't have to. All Need You Tonight requires is a performer who understands the folly of outsinging the groove. Yeah. And if you listen to the Bonnie Raitt uh, uh, cover from 2016, Alfred is right. Bonnie Raitt just does it straight. It's Bonnie Raitt does Michael Hutchins. And... But with her guitar style and all that, so it's it's done as a Bonnie Raitt song. But she doesn't do Bonnie Raitt; she does Michael Hutchins, and it works. It's it's a fun ass cover. Uh, so go go check that out, folks. Bonnie Raitt's cover of "Need You Tonight." Yes, that is a real thing. I don't think oh, yeah. it's hard to sing that tune. No, it's not. It's very subdued, but it's, it's fun. Very, it's yeah. yeah, and it's that's I think what makes it really identifiable and it's part of the greatness of that song is singing it is accessible you know what i mean and yeah you, you can just sing along with it i mean there's a couple there's a couple points where hutchins hits hits like some higher registers a little bit but most people yeah. can just belt it out like that too i think yeah you know, you know that whole i'm lonely 
Yeah. Arturo, your turn. Yeah, I love kick. Chris, you love kick. Daniel, you love kick. But there's one person out there who is kind of lukewarm on kick. Who's that? And that is the legendary music critic Robert Criscow from New York's Village Voice, the Dean of Music of American Music Journalism, in one of his pocket reviews. This is what he said back in 1988. Quote, that these silly middle brow hacks should hang in long enough to become stars is the usual bi- uh, music biz fable that they should do so with danceable rock and roll that sounds smart in the background is one more sign that the world is coming to an end. B. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, gee, Bob, tell us how you really feel. I guarantee you he was, he regrets that, you know, he'll, he'll have that come back in his dreams late at night, you know, like, well, where, where well, you're just I like, mean, oh, what the fuck was I thinking? Look, yeah. you know, Chris Gow is a good writer, but uh, but Mike, Mike Doughty uh, or Doughty of uh, Soul Coughing fame uh, had a wonderful line about Bob Chris Gow. He says, uh, Chris Gow gets paid to write about his mail. <laughs> yeah. So I, yeah. I, I always love that. So I, I, I love kick. Um, I'm not yes. crazy about how this record ends. It feels like yeah. incomplete. It feels like they were under some kind of time constraint or something and, and just, okay, we, we've got to put it out. It just doesn't feel like it closes very strongly. Like I don't like the last one or yeah, two. T- yeah. Tiny daggers is kind of lame. So yeah. So yeah. it's kind of, it, it doesn't. Yeah. yeah. I wish there yeah. was, I wish I there mean, was when a little the album ends on a throwaway. That, that's what keeps it from being a five star uh, because it does kind of end on throwaways, but uh, yeah, up Solid in, up, four, four and a half, I'd say. Yeah, you know, up up through the title track, it's damn near perfect, though. Uh, 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 yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The first, yeah, the first, yeah, six or seven tunes are amazing. One other thing I didn't know uh-huh. about this: the loved one, kind of that slower bluesy tune. Yeah. They actually originally released that back in like '81 or '80. Oh wow, like when yeah. they're really early, but they just released it as a single and had never put it on an album. Huh. And then it's on kick. Who knows? Which, you know. Wow. Well, yeah. Hey, you know, hey, go figure, man. Wow. <laughs> Blown away by that little factoid. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's <laughs> kind of funny that you mentioned Mediate. I, I, I'm not a huge fan of Mediate, but but part of that is only because I never liked the video, the whole Bob Dylan knockoff thing. I thought I thought that was corny as shit. I just I just love you know, I, being a DJ, mm-hmm. I just love segues where yeah. the music you know, you got you got the continuous kind of dance vibe going on there that yeah. you know how DJs the world over just love but I love it when it's on an album yep. I just absolutely love it you know like yeah. the B side of Abbey Road and stuff like that I mean I yeah. just I just love it when they're putting the effort into it to make it like a continuous massive sure. piece I think it's Olympic amazing. feats of engineering yes. <laughs> well yeah with the Beatles for sure man well yeah but, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, sure. I think Kick is a five star album. I love the way it ends. I love all those songs. Kick is on my five greatest five hundred albums of all time list. Mm, and that's coming at another. That's coming at another time. Yes, Next, it is. Nineteen nineties X. Now, con- contrary to popular belief among modern music fans, or at least younger millennial and Gen Z fan- fans. NXS did not fall off the face of the earth after Kick. No, the, e- the eagerly anticipated follow-up 1990s X was not 
a commercial flop. It charted in the top 10 in more than 10 countries all over the world, went two times platinum in the US, Canada, and Australia, platinum in the UK, France, Switzerland, etc. With Suicide Blonde and Disappear, the album produced two massive top 10 hits in the US and in several other countries. When I mentioned earlier in this episode's parameter setter that in excess were ubiquitous during this era, I meant it. Uh, while reviews for the album were mostly positive, some even glowing, the few negative reviews focused on how it followed the same formula as the previous album. Who gives However, a shit? Well, well, here's the thing. I, I, disagree, with, I, I disagree with that. <laughs> Anyone with ears not filled with wax or with common sense would know that is utter bullshit. There are two big distinctions between Kick and X. First, while Kick featured the band's patented dance rock sound, augmented by a wealth of other diverse influences and genres, the sound on X seems to generally focus on two styles. Classic 1960s and 70s R&B soul, albeit put through a distinct in excess filter, and the Stone Roses, Happy Mondays-esque indie dance sound coming out of Manchester at the time. Of course, no one will ever confuse Michael Hutchins and the Ferris brothers for being ecstasy-gobbling fiends listening to nonstop house music, although they probably did do a bit of that in their downtime at the time. You can certainly detect the impact of that sound and style on this record. Second, X has a very heavy production sound, particularly with the drums and percussion, making it possibly the heaviest sounding in excess record yet. Um, this does nothing but enhance the already great songs that Hutchins and Ferris were coming up with at the time. Seriously, these guys were on a roll, on a yeah. creative roll. Not only were the two singles I mentioned great, in excess never stopped being a great singles band, but disappear and album tracks like The Stairs and On My Way also get beefed up uh, from the slight moderation to the classic in excess sound. All in all, it's a great record and arguably the band's third best. You know, mm. Daniel? Yeah, I'd say you're right about that. They also add, you know, some other elements that have never been in in excess records before the harmonica being a very notable part of it. But like suicide blonde always reminds me of this certain style of rock that you hear, especially in guys in the outback and stuff like that. I met this artist last year during the buskers world cup named Ben Jans, and he's got this, Oh, wow. Multi-instrumental, even in his buskers performances, he's, you know, I mean, he's just linked up with like 10 different instruments. Yeah, one man band. Yeah, Yeah, he's he's a harmonobot type of thing. But he plays this very kind of, I don't know how you would describe it, like rolling thunder folk of the highway down there. And this this (laughs) very much is in that category. Um, It's got that, it's got that like acoustic guitar going on, but a, a really heavy danceable beat um it's just yeah. very distinctive and the record as a whole what there's probably like five tunes that are absolute anthems at the time mm-hmm. i mean you've got mm-hmm. suicide blonde disappear by my side was a huge tune yeah, yeah by bitter my side bitter tears yeah. was massive no the difference i think was a big thing in the uk and australia remember yeah. correctly um really great record i mean you could argue it's maybe their second best um, yeah, I mean, I'm kind, it, of torn. I'm kind of torn between this one and the next one. Yeah, as far right. as which is my, you know, although runner did, up. 
as a spoiler, I'm not. Uh, but uh, uh, Suicide Blonde is uh, probably my second favorite song from them uh, next to Need You Tonight. Maybe objectively their best because you said it's it's got this really quirky mix of, of styles and sounds and things going yeah. on. And, yeah. you know, with great use of reverb on the harmonica. And it has this really kind of cool mix of like, let's say like British New Wave, California surf rock and yes. like yeah. De- and Detroit funk. I mean, there's like this, this almost like this, like clubby, like almost the club music uh, of, of the era of 89. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's kind of the Manchester thing there, but also, but the surf rock too. I mean, it, 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 it almost like a little bit of rockabilly ish tinge, not just with the harmonica, but the acoustic guitar yeah, and yeah. a little bit of skit, uh, the skittering uh, riff to it. And, it's it's a very it's a it's a very ex, almost eccentric uh, song. Uh, it's mixed. It's mixed really aggressively, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, from the harmonica yeah. down to everything. I mean, the way the yeah. The I mean, that razor wire harmonica out. sound. It's it's fucking phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible, man. Really, yeah. really great tune. I I probably agree with you. That that might be my favorite excess tune of all time. If not, it definitely like number two, number three. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say for me, it's like need you tonight. Uh, really Suicide Bond, and then about four songs on our next uh, record that we're covering. So yeah. Arturo, what, yeah. what, what, what came yeah. after X? Yeah. After X 1992, welcome to wherever you are. This is the album where in excess's commercial fortunes start to decline. And a, uh, Two reasons are generally given. One is that by 1992, the grunge alternative indie gone mainstream revolution was on and the band's brand of danceable pop rock was going out of fashion. Another and probably more pertinent reason is that after years of monstrous levels of touring, NXS decided to take the touring cycle for this album off and resume it for when the next album would come out, which at the time was planned for the following year. Uh, The combination of the two hit the band hard. Uh, I think in the end it was a bad decision um, for because Welcome to Wherever You Are, while being their only number one album in the UK, curiously landed at only number 16 in the US and shockingly at only number two uh, in Australia. It's a shame, really, because this is some of the boldest most adventurous, most expansive music of NXS's career. Just like the indie dance sounds of late 80s Acid House Manchester informed the heavier, more bombastic sound of the, of the preceding album X, the alternative revolution emanating from the U.S. colored this album with a dark, grimy edge that only enhances the already sharpened songwriting skills of the, the Hutchins-Ferris duo. Um, contemporaries of theirs, such as U2, Depeche Mode, and R.E.M., were maturing at this time into producing some of the best music of their respective careers, and NXS were really right there with them. It's a sad shame that they didn't have the ears of the mainstream majority that those other bands had at this time. Um, if you read, uh, if you listen to the lyrics, and uh, if you read, the, sorry, if you read the lyrics to mid-tempo pop soul gems like. Not Enough Time and Beautiful Girl, they're actually pretty average. But Hutchins's understated vocals imbue the words oh, yeah. with a sense of subtle pathos, longing, and 
and a yearning that seep under your skin and remind you what really constitutes good soul music. Uh, Heaven sent an all-around rock with a passionate fury the band had rarely, if ever, shown before. Uh, Baby Don't Cry is the kind of rousing, arena-filling R&B soul mantra song that NXS always hinted at, but never really followed all the way through. Um, closing track, Men and Women, is a this track of simmering introspective art rock that the band had never shown before. Uh, it's a startlingly brilliant album and easily, I think, the second best album in their entire catalog. Uh, I don't don't know. But here's the thing. Like, okay, so we've all said, you know, Kick is this great album and it's my favorite NXS record. I make an argument objectively for this is their best. Uh, And it's definitely their boldest in the sense that they just outright abandoned a template. Yeah. Uh, And kind of uh, they really went outside of a comfort zone and they were just trying. They were trying for things and they, they were. Uh, they were looking for what was next. And and I think what it was is that they had gotten so confident and assured at least that partnership of Hutchinson fairness, Mm. uh, you know, from what I've read about the record that essentially it was, uh, uh, Opitz and, uh, Hutchins and Andrew Ferris were like basically made the whole record, uh, everybody, you know, in terms of the creative contribution and the direction to it, because everybody Mm. else was going through, uh, uh, personal uh, dramas of one kind uh, or another. And so, yeah. so you think of it as an accomplishment. I mean, just to have heaven sent, which is an, another one of those uh, licensing hall of fame type of songs that you hear yeah. all over the place. <laughs> like you don't uh, really know the tune, but it, it comes up everywhere. Yeah. Yes. And then, and then it comes in there. And so you're familiar with that, but not enough time is just brilliant. I mean, that's a beautiful, beautiful little soul ballad, uh, uh, Kirk Pangeli ended up uh, marrying the backup singer, uh, from what I read, and so, so oh, she, yeah. I, I, obviously it was it, it compelled him just as much as it might compel uh, us as listeners. <laughs> yeah. uh, but you know, but like "Beautiful Girl" has got that really clean, crisp uh, uh, pop uh, sound, and and like like you said, Art, it's you know Hutchins is you know he's he's not so much playing a character, you know, he's not doing the slithering thing as much anymore here he's it's more he's brooding he's brooding yeah now. it's brooding yes. but it's also but yes. it's brooding but it's heartfelt too and so there's there's real pathos there's real soul and it's sort of the the culmination of their journey so you step outside of the template and now they're they're comfortable enough as artists and look at this point you know, they've made it so what do they need to stick to a template for they you know they they're at the dance they're at the top of the dance One other point is uh, they're also a victim of bad timing here. You know, as you know, we have a, a, um, uh, Daniel, we have an episode in our catalog called the dregs of Nirvana. And, uh, but, (laughs) but we also, but we make a point, we had a couple of records, but death by Nirvana and the dregs of Nirvana. Well, this this fits into the death by Nirvana. That's unfortunately. Yeah. So, so go back and and listen to our, uh, uh, our death by Nirvana episode, but in excess kind of fits into this. It's it's a list of 10 bands slash artists whose careers were either irrevocably changed or ruined by the alternative and grunge revolution. Yeah. Yeah. but But it's mostly like the hair metal bands, you know, it's mostly like the poisons and the warrants and, uh, yeah, and, and Genesis yeah. actually, we we yeah, have it's, we, it's, we it's usually Genesis. the bands. It's usually the bands that were trying to do rock. Yeah, you yeah, know, exactly. in the '80s template, but they couldn't make the yeah. switch because they but, just weren't grungy enough. Yeah, but now like I said, you know, the second half of 1991, you get the Black Album, you get Blood Sugar Sex Magic, you get Nevermind, and you get one. Uh, I mean, it's, it's essentially, those are not one ten. Ten. 
Yeah, ten, Pearl yeah, Jam. Ten. Yeah, 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 ten. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I know. Well, you two's uh, Octung Baby came out around the same time, but basically, you don't take... worry. I'm not. I'm not a Pearl Jam guy. Who cares? Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> One, ten, a hundred, fifteen. I don't know. But you, you take those that collection of albums. They all hit, and so uh, now this is this is what MTV is, and so now there's just not enough room for in excess and like even Def Leppard, uh, who, you know, they, they had a halfway decent single that came out around that time, but they couldn't get in, in heavy rotation on MTV. Why? Because all the Seattle bands and the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Metallica were dominating the airwaves and in excess yeah. fell into that. And so they, they come right. out with probably Def Leppard had another problem. They terminally suck. Don't you don't you find it suspect that nobody in England where they're from gives a fuck about Def Leppard? Like they're only popular in the States. (laughs) That is that is a red fucking flag. Yeah. You are just a label and AR created nightmare that we just had to deal with on the charts for a while. I mean, definitely a talented band, whatever, but does anybody is anybody really like a super hardcore fan of Def Leppard? Like yeah, well, you know, the other thing is, mm-hmm. I don't think it was really grunge that killed off in excess. I think it was a taxi driver giving yeah. Michael Hudson's brain damage late well, at night. Yeah, you know, that, 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 yeah and that's, I mean, that's where we that's get into what, it. That's, that's what's upsetting about this album is because they were going yeah. in an interesting, like, yeah. brooding, rich, velour direction. And then it's and, all over because Michael yeah. Hutchins was basically... Yeah, which Brain one? Caps. Yeah, which one? He wants to tell that story. What's the story like? That basically, uh, like I, 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 I can, I, I just watched the documentary uh, okay. about Michael Hutchins a few days ago. What happened? Yeah. He was in Amsterdam hanging out with probably one of his several girlfriends or what? It was, um, it, it was who was Christina Helena Christensen? Helena Christensen. Christensen. That's Helena right. Christensen. Yeah. They were in her hometown. They mm. were in Amsterdam, and uh, they were on this narrow, really small, narrow street. Hutchins may have been drunk or stoned or whatever, but anyway, he was eating pizza. He yeah. was eating a slice of pizza, walking down the street. It's a very narrow street. And there was a taxi driver right behind him. It was honking him, like, get out of the way. It's a narrow street. And Hutchins was like, oh, whatever, eating his pizza. The taxi driver got out of the car, punched him. But when Hutchins fell, his head hit the curb. Yep. And it fractured his skull. And it damaged his brain, uh, some of the nerves in his brain, to the point where he lost his sense of both smell and taste. Taste, jeez. Yeah, can you imagine? He lost his sense of smell. He lost his sense of taste. And on top of that, because it's brain drama, brain, it's head trauma. Um, if you know anything about Imp- impulse CTE, control, yeah. You know, you know anything about CTE? People who suffer from from long term brain trauma, they have extreme mood swings, which yeah. are normal one minute. And they're like either violent or angry or just upset the next minute. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Hutchins became emotionally and mentally unstable. Yeah. And, uh, it had an effect on the band. It had an effect on his relationships with the rest of these of, the, of these guys who were essentially his best friends. Yeah. And it had an effect on his on his personal romantic relationships. Uh, and then it just kept going and going, and he got more and more depressed um, mm. following this album. By the mid 1990s, Hutchins got also depressed, you know, more and more because the band wasn't as popular anymore. So one thing just on one thing stacked on top of another. Yeah, uh, yeah. Really yeah. bad romantic relationships, his band not being popular anymore, him losing confidence, and him just being mentally unstable. And eventually he killed yeah, himself. Yeah, you know, he suffers brain damage and hooks up with Paula Yates at the same time. Bad combination. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, shout out to Bob, Bob Geldof, who'd probably be the one person on earth who wouldn't fuck Michael Hutchins, but he did end up fucking yeah. him in the end. Well, well maybe, he, maybe at one point <laughs> he did until like he stole he his in, wife. He was in other yeah. styles of yeah. screwing. You know? Yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, it's just kind of a shame because it, it's it's interesting to see the direction they're trying to go in yeah. at yeah. this point. And while it might not have been as popular as the stuff they put out before, it was still interesting. And I don't think the aim of the band, and especially not Hutchins, was to be this big-time pop band forever playing, like, stadium rock. I mean, I think for the tour of this album, they actually played, like, smaller venues and stuff like that. Of course, the label people were flipping out, saying, what the fuck are you guys doing? But um, I think he's kind of... They're going in this conscious direction, but then... You know, he smashes the front of his head on uh, on a curb in Amsterdam, and it's kind of over. And yeah. you know, you can you can see the product of yeah, bands total discord from his brain damage and oh yeah, the next the, the, the next record, which or total talk about, with the exception of one song, only because it's fun, was terrible. Yeah, oh, and both, this, both this, of them, I I can't I can't even remember. Tunes yeah. that like fucking Ray Charles and Christy Hind were on. I like oh, I, the, Ray, I the Ray Charles song is great. I mean, that's the uh, one song I like. Sucks. Well, let's, so let's, bad. So yeah. bad. Yeah, let's, let's slow get, it down. Let's yeah. get to those albums. Uh, yeah. Full Moon Dirty Hearts from 1993. I mentioned yeah. how the band's previous album, Welcome to Wherever You Are, that we all love, uh, was influenced by the alternative rock movement of the early 90s in that their uh, patented dance rock sound emerged with a darker, dirtier edge. Uh, for this album... Um, in excess, completely throw away any semblance of their classic sound out the window and totally immerse themselves in alternative rock with shades of electronica thrown in. Is it any good? Uh, yeah. not very mixed. Um, when generational contemporaries such as Depeche Mode and U2 made their deep dive into alternative rock, 1993's masterpiece, Songs of Faith and Devotion for the former, 1993's nearly perfect Zeropa for the latter, uh, the results were inspired and innovative. However, in excess's similar approach on an album from the same year sometimes comes across as contrived and forced. Yeah. Um, worse still, yes. the Hutchins-Farris songwriting partnership comes up disappointingly short of arresting memorable songs and a bit long on uninspired lyrics on several of the tracks. Where the hell are the catchy melodies? Where are the hooks? Nevertheless, this is still in excess, and even at their most uninspired, they can still produce some cracking singles. Um, yeah. The Gift has a menacing, sped-up, yeah, trip-hop Yeah, that's move. a pretty good song. Um, time is the best. Time is the best song on the whole album, I think, and uh, drives yeah. along like slick polished Ferrari with the best chorus and hook on the whole record. Um, I'm only looking is delectable Euro trash funk. It's goofy, but I like it, you know, in that sense. And uh, it's an uneven album as a whole that could have used some more uh, time spent on it. If not a little more song doctoring, you know, Daniel. That gets back to Hutchins's injury. Nobody could spend time with him in the studio for this record. He was insufferable. He was completely bipolar at this point. And you watch uh, Mystify, that yeah. documentary. He is yeah. just, you know, I mean, just wildly roller coastering and swinging from one 
you know, emotional state to the next, and they just cannot fucking handle him. Yeah, but but it's also the lifestyle, too. Forget it. Yeah, it's it's the lifestyle too because he's living. They they recorded this in Paris, I believe, or in France, and he's living in France at the time. And you know his, his you know his model friends and his party friends and his druggy friends and and, and all of his, this. His, his, his drug intake increased and this time too oh, because yeah. of the head injury. Yeah, same with yeah. same with the alcohol. I mean, he's drinking. He's high as fuck all the time. I mean, yeah, and and nobody can really deal with him his, unless he's partying. You know? Yeah, and then he's bringing his people by there, and so it it kind of yeah. isolates him from the rest of the band, and yeah. there's a lot of alienation, and there's a lot of drama. But yeah, you know, happy accident. It just so happens that Ray Charles was recording in the the, the studio next door to them, and <laughs> right. uh, and so they end up getting him to sing on "Please You Got That," which is a lot of fun hearing Ray Charles sing NXS. Yeah. Uh, I think yeah. it sucks. I disagree with that. I think that song uh, sucks. I, it's I fun. Think I, I mean, it, tell you the truth, almost, it would if it, it would suck if it was just Michael Hutchins. It's Ray Charles that actually adds a level of charm to it because it's like, wow, Ray Charles is singing white boy Australian music. Yeah, you know? it just feels so like forced and contrived that song. Like, oh, Ray's, the song certainly Ray's, is. Ray's Ray's just in the bag. Go tell it. You know, and it's you know, okay. you know, it's just like rage. It's just awesome. Ray having, oh, you know, these, these young white kids, you know, they want to, they, they want to prop me up. Okay. I'll go have some fun and, you know, I'll go yeah. hammer them. And you can I mean, tell, you know, Ray's having fun are, on the track. You know, there are a couple, there are a couple grooves on this record that yeah. are noticeable and pretty good. Yeah. Um, as mm-hmm. songs, I think it's all just mush, man. It, it's yeah. for the most part, it is really yeah. nothing. Nothing. Yeah. The, the, the gift, the gift is not a Chrissy song. Hind, I think the tune with Chrissy Hind is is decent ish. It's it it, it 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 has something to it, but I don't know. Yeah, yeah I mean, for and example, the gift is pretty. Good I, too. I think you're right about yeah. that, David. The gift is not a really good song, song, but it is a great groove. Yeah, and that's good enough for me. You know, if it has a great groove, I can live with it. Yeah, um, time. That, time that actually is for me. Yeah, yeah. Time is actually a really good. It's the only. It's the best song song on this album, I think. You know. Yeah. yeah. And it was, and it was a single. Yeah, <laughs> I, I yeah, I just the whole thing just strikes me as sub ziggy. I mean, I would give this album like probably like a D minus or something. Yeah, There's just so much going on in the background that it's completely understandable. You're right. They should yeah. have spent more time on this record. But yeah. there's no possible way that would have ever. Well, happened. you know, they have like a two-man Without- creative partnership, and one of them is out to lunch. What are you gonna do? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, either that, or when he's, you know, when he's around, he is insufferable. He's yeah, half the time at least. Yeah. You know, so it's it's like the band is already dead, man. I mean, you know, half the group is pretty much killed off. I mean, brain damage is. Can you imagine yeah. losing your sense of smell and taste? That must yeah. be insanely depressing yeah like, i mean I, go ahead two-thirds of your connection to the world are well half of your connections to the world sense-wise are just gone yeah like, i mean i having i have no sense of smell myself i mean really yeah I, I i have a sense of taste or at least i do taste things and they taste yeah. like things i don't know yeah, if they taste yeah. like you guys do but uh, yeah so i can't imagine having i can't <laughs> imagine losing both smell and taste that would just be that would be crazy and yeah, I mean, yeah. what I mean, it's basically half your olfactory senses, but especially taste, man. I mean, mm-hmm. eating is like one of the big pleasures of life. There's like, sure. you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's only so many of them. Yeah, and that just kind of 
takes away yeah. two thirds of the pleasure of eating. There you go. The big yeah. thing, but yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, it just it just strikes me as just this complete wash of a record that they rushed and kind of put out, and it feels like a record that they were doing some kind of okay, we're fulfilling our contractual obligation well, or something. That, it feels that's like exactly like that. That's exactly what they were doing. I think that that was the they. I think at the end of this, they owed. Atlantic one more record. And so they, uh, it was Warner, Warner brothers. It was Warner. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So they owed like one more record to the record label. And so they ended up doing a live record and then they moved on to polygram, uh, from there. And Uh, here's the, I guess this is the tragedy. You know, we go into this last record, uh, with Michael Hutchinson, they actually were on a little bit, just a little bit of an upswing with elegantly wasted. Right. A little bit. Yeah. I think you're right about that. Let's get into that album. Um, what you think of Full Moon Dirty Hearts, Daniel, is what I think of Elegantly Wasted. Um, if grunge and alternative rock weren't enough to knock in excess off their pop pedestal, uh, the three years between Full Moon Dirty Hearts and Elegantly Wasted saw the rise of Britpop, that other huge rock movement of the 1990s. To make matters worse for the general view of in excess as being washed up, At the 1996 Brit Awards, Michael Hutchins presented an award to Oasis for something. And Noel Gallagher went upstage and mouthed off, has-beens shouldn't be giving awards to gunnabees. Ouch. Yikes. Um, It would have been poetic justice if In Excess bounced back to produce a comeback album to match the quality of X or Welcome to Wherever You Are. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. Elegantly Wasted is even more lacking in the songwriting department than uh, um, than Full Moon Dirty Hearts. And sadder still, for the first time, In Excess sound like they're recycling themselves. No innovation, no yeah. experimentation, just blah. Um, nevertheless, singles were always this band's saving grace. The title track is probably the only song on the album where In Excess is tired but true dance rock formula is beefed up by a decent song craft via its awesome funk groove. Yeah, mm-hmm. don't, don't Lose Your Head, which was used in the John Travolta, Nicolas Cage film Face Off. Love that um, movie. It is a slick slice oh of Oh my God, fuck that movie. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's, it is, but the song was used in it. I saw that in the theaters. Ugh. <laughs> yeah, uh, that that movie. Uh, I I saw that movie with my aunt June, and she, she was completely befuddled. I was I adored it. I I thought it was. Like, <laughs> I, I'm I'm one of these people, and Arturo will tell you, like I love preposterous movies and preposterous TV. The more the more preposterous, the better. Uh, I pretty anyway. really like that. I, I prefer Hong Kong John Woo over well, his American. I mean, every, everybody everybody with like a pulse. Uh, actually yeah. prefers John Woo's Hong Kong, yeah. but that movie is fantastic. But anyway, anyway don't, no, don't, lose, your head. don't no, lose your head is an okay slice of Neo soul with a, with a nifty gospel chorus. Yeah. And some of the angriest lyrics that uh, Hutchins ever came up with. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. those two tracks weren't enough to keep the album from tanking a fact made even sadder by Hutchins's suicide later in the year. Yeah. Daniel, Daniel go ahead. Uh, yeah, this record, I mean, you can definitely hear and feel the anger of Hutchins and his depression, which with the legal situation with his kid, shout out to all Peter Pan fans named Tiger Lily. 
by the way. <laughs> 22 now, I think. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite and underappreciated characters in Peter Pan. Um, yep. You can definitely hear the anger, the frustration, and just the outright depression the guy's going through, man. He, yeah. He, it's yeah, just he sounds very cynical on this record. Yeah. Yeah. Th- I mean, whereas. I mean, think about it. Mental uh, brain trauma, no sense of smell, no sense of taste. He's hooked on all these drugs, on booze. He's in a toxic romantic relationship. Um, the authorities are trying to take the kids away from him because, and probably rightfully so, he's not fit to be a parent at this stage in his life. Yeah, neither and is his, Paula. His, 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 neither is Paula. Um, his band is sinking. They're not creating anything worth a shit. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the point I was trying, I was trying to make was, whereas previous record is brooding by design it's kind of like this rich velour brooding feeling this is just angry like yeah. Yeah. kind of discombobulated and it, yeah. it just doesn't do anything like you said the singles yeah they're yeah. totally forgettable i can't i, I can't like, even name them i listened to the record last night i was like nothing, yeah there's, there's i gotta nothing admit really i like elegantly wasted the single and this album yeah, is the a, only song I like. Yeah, yeah. This, this is an uptick from the previous the record. Exactly decent. Yeah, because it's to me they're not recycling in excess so much as and again, uh, uh, Hutchinson and Andrew Ferris at this point are both living in London, and to me this is like their take on the Stones. Uh, I hear a lot of Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, uh, yeah, uh, reverence, and obviously not anywhere near as good as that. But uh, right. I do hear some some Rolling Stones uh, reverence in in the vocals, especially. I mean, it's like I think mm-hmm. Hutchins, whether he means to or not, is kind of doing an impression of, of of Mick, and and then just some of the so that is makes it kind of uh, makes me smile a little bit. I like elegantly wasted. I think it does have this, uh, like I said, almost that London blues rock kind of feel to it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you're right. It's another disappointing record. They're a long way from uh, Welcome to Wherever You Are. I mean, it's amazing that the band does an album that good, and within five years they had like crumpled. Yeah. Uh, well, I think I think in either scenario you guys just listed, it's basically looking at a clone of a clone or a copy of a copy. Like yeah. that's basically Bingo. what's going on here. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's just I, I, I mean, it's it's one of those moments where you listen to a record that you're like kind of wondering like. Was that so so, or did it actually suck? And me going through like the mental inventory, I mean, yeah, elegantly wasted is an okay track. Like, I could barely remember anything else from the record. It was all just kind of an oatmeal, <laughs> just yeah, sloshing away <laughs> in a part of my brain that I just forget about all the time. So, so um, was it was it maple and brown sugar, or was it apple cinnamon? No, it wasn't. It wasn't nearly that good. It was just okay. like gruel that you would serve okay. at a workhouse in England during the Victorian era. There you go. Yeah. Charles Dickens, baby. Charles Dickens. Yeah, so some oatmeal is pretty good. Yeah. I, <laughs> hey, I'm not. Oatmeal I, and blueberries I'm, is my breakfast of choice these days. So, you know. Oh, you yeah, dude. I've basically got frozen fruit in the freezer just to <laughs> put on, you know, the uh, oatmeal in the morning. But yeah, it just it just kind of it just it's just kind of nothing like right after I listened to it. It's kind of like that line from BoJack Horseman where the agent is telling off this guy. It's like, I'm forgetting your face even as I'm telling you off staring right at it right now. Like, <laughs> it's, yeah. it, 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 it just strikes you like that. I, it strikes me like that. 
Yeah. Well, he, he, here's the point, and I think the main point of this episode, like uh, or one of the main points of this episode, yes, these latter two albums kind of sucked, but NXS shouldn't be as a whole. Their whole discography and their legacy shouldn't be penalized for that. No. Because when they were in their top form, they were not only one of the most popular bands in the world, they were one of the best bands in the world. Yeah. They and, were a and, phenomenal band. Right. And, and history should not forget them. I mean, that's part of uh, one of our missions, Daniel, in this <laughs> podcast and the curmudgeonly community. Uh, I know you're a, a part of on Facebook. One of our missions is to point out that there are some artists and some songs and some forms and you know some moods and attitudes that should not be left to the dustbin of history. And yes. I mean, uh, in excess is one of those. Look, look, who, look who their generational um, um, uh, contemporaries, U2, The Cure, um, even in, in their fellow, their, their native Australia, uh, Nick Cave. Depeche yeah. Mode just came out with an album too. So Yeah. Those, those artists and bands are all like celebrated by younger generation fans. In excess should be as well. Yeah, they yeah, should well, be. I think, I think also those contemporaries love In Excess. That's yeah. another thing they had from their contemporaries. The, and, you know, I mean, whether you're talking about Robert Smith or whoever they, uh, you know, especially Bono, they yeah. all admired, especially Michael Hutchins and what in excess did, you know? Oh yeah, absolutely. Time. And, and uh, that, that to me is the main tell, you know, that's, and, and here's something that I wonder, do you guys remember there was a reality show like in like 2004, 2005 called rockstar uh, that was on yeah. CBS and the yeah. hook of this was it was the Ferris Brothers and Pangeli, I think, or whoever was in, you know, around in excess at the time. It was a uh, American Idol type competition. And I think it was hosted by like Dave Navarro and Sharon Osbourne or something. And yeah. uh, the, con- it, the the hook of the singing competition was to be the new lead singer of NXS. Yeah, I, I, I think that was I think that was uh, I, that's definitely a show like I saw later on. I thought it was a Canadian show, though. Or no, uh, no, Canadian it was on CBS. Some, a a yeah, Canadian on- initially won the contest. Some yeah. guy from Canada. Yeah. yeah, and then they had some other band like the next year, like some other washed up band. But but I think it was like gimmicks like that that you know that at the time when social media was starting to form, when they're doing that, it yeah, it, che- right. it, che- it cheapens them, and it I don't know, like you know, so, yeah. social media is very selective that. Um, one of the the bad things about social media is that starting in about 2005, when you know YouTube hits, uh, like cultural, like communal cultural experience gets cut off, and yeah. so for some reason, uh, you know, like a lot of bands, you know, and a lot of artists made the cut or had you know comebacks or retro or you know had reverence, and then some bands just got cut off, like you know, REM who we're going to talk about in our next episode is one of those bands. They're like NXS got cut off. Uh, and there are those bands that we, you know, that we grew up on, that we adored that, you know, our generation, the generation before us. And then, you know, like the, the older millennials uh, all vibed on, but for whatever reason, the social media thing of, you know, like just like sort of shallow celebrations or, you know, kind of like, like a long December by the Counting Crows, which is a great song has been now deified and lionized on Twitter. Like for whatever reason, it's like the big hip thing to to love. But well, yeah. to be honest, I'm not a Counting Crows fan, but that that is their best song. Oh, it is. Yes. It's, it, it's an amazing by, by song, far. and it, it it deserves the deification. But so does Need You Tonight. And so there's this kind of selective deification that you know social media, you know the whole group think thing or viral thinking 
for whatever reason, the, the NXSs and the REMs, they were just left on the dock. And yeah, well, the, the other thing shame. is, the other thing is, even though they were around from, you know, if you go all the way back to the beginning, 71, in pop consciousness, they're around like 12 years, 13 years, like in pop consciousness, wherever, right. whether you're talking about in Australia or wherever. Right. right. It, it's, it's a shame. Um, welcome to wherever you are. I think they were going in a direction that could have given them yeah. a transition I agree. to becoming a legendary band that did have a yeah. comeback. But yeah. Hutchins was, you know, just damaged goods by the next record. And they were in a huge social brouhaha between the band members. And it just wasn't to be. Yeah, so, and it was a mess. I, I and, think know. they're just one of those weird bands that historically are like on the cusp. But yeah, the, you know, the reality show contest. Who's going to be the next Michael Hutchins? Definitely yeah. cheapens them. Yeah. It makes them into a fucking meme. Yeah, and, and yeah, uh, exactly. And poor Michael Hutchins, the guy was so like desperately lonely and depressed that he hung himself from the doorknob of the inside of a hotel room yeah. facing the door. Yeah. Not yeah, facing man. away from the door, facing the door. Yeah, uh, he was toxically that, depressed. I mean, that, just that, that, that's how much he wanted out. Uh yeah. That, that's just and it's tragic. And because what a talent, you know. I mean, it's it's a waste. Ultimately. Yeah. But what a great band, and and it's been really great talking about them, Daniel. Before we uh, before we wrap up, want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about your show and about your virtues and where people can find you, and especially, you know, we we have uh, listenerships not just there in Korea, but obviously in the states, and people listen to us in places like South Africa. Uh, tell them where they can find you on the web. Um, well, I have, you know, I do I do my show. Basically every night. I also post it as a podcast. We'll post the uh, you know the RSS feed or whatever below, along with I guess some okay. some links to it. But what I do on my show is well, it's called the drop. And the main thing okay. is I try to kind of go over as much as the mu- as much of the musical universe in a five day period as I can, at least style wise. So Monday play two hours of new music. We kind of cover some like Korean uh-huh. indie and, you know, bubbling under K-pop stuff to end the show mm. in part four. It's two hours every night. Um, Tuesday is all new indie and underground stuff for the full two hours. Um, Wednesday, we do like a travel show. Hmm. So we go to a different city or country every week and um, explore the music, explore the vibes, maybe, you know, find some hidden gems Wow. You know, whether it's old or new, whatever. Um, Thursday, the second hour is rock with our man, Dan Lloyd, who is from the band Malarkey here. And okay. uh, first hour, I do funk and soul and stuff like that. So um, it's always something different each and every night. Fridays, we do interviews with artists. They join us to rock a playlist and talk about, you know, their new album or what they've, you know, what's, what inspires their sound and stuff like that. So... Um, I think it's pretty, you know, interesting if you want to keep up with new music and, um, yeah, that's about it. All right. So drop. And if you, if you just search for it, you know, the RSS feed and stuff will come up, but uh, the drop with Dano. There you go. I got you. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll definitely be hooking up the, uh, sending out the link as part of the show notes and as part of, uh, our commercial community, Daniel. Uh, uh, this is, this has been great, man. Uh, you know, it's, it's always Hey, you you know more about NXS than almost anybody I've ever met. That that, that that's a guy that that's a guy I want to hang out with and toast toast beers with. 
And on that <laughs> note, uh, folks, as I always uh, end these episodes with, uh, we've talked about our curmudgeonly community. Become a member. Uh, go to facebook.com slash groups slash rock. It's invite only, but chances are we'll let you in so long as you're well, allowed within 500 feet of a school. Uh, and you can always email us. Uh, the email is curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Uh, and uh, we welcome any and all uh, love and or hate mail. And uh, we also have a presence on Twitter, which, you know, is an increasingly strange place. But uh, we post up there and we we pay attention. Uh, if you are an 80s metal dude, uh, chances are you have a very, very strong Twitter feed. Uh, Paul Stanley and Dee Snyder, who got in trouble this week, but uh, their feeds are really, really fun. Uh, Steve Gorman of the Black Crows. Uh, Jason Isbell's uh, feed is legendary. Uh, mm. and so we follow all those people, and we also like to troll John Rich of Big and Rich because that guy's a crazy, wacko, fascist kind of guy. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, so fun, fun times up on Twitter as well. 